Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It is good to see you this morning. I'm going to give you a few minutes here to find Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, this is old school, Old Testament, uh, probably about the middle of your Bible, maybe a little bit to the right of the middle of your Bible. There's no shame in using your table of contents this morning. Isaiah 64, the more that you use your table of contents, the more comfortable you'll be with your Bible, the more you'll be able to find things in your Bible. I hope you bring your Bible on Sundays. I know I put things up on the screen, but... That's just for those of us visual learners who have to like look at things to, to learn stuff. Uh, I'd prefer that you look at your Bible, bring your Bible with you. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, use your phone. In your phone, you could just type into Google Isaiah and the number 64. It'll take you to a link where you can follow along with us today. If you're visiting us for the first time today, I want to extend a personal welcome to you for visiting Grace the first time. My name is Nathan. And I do hope you sit back and relax and enjoy your Sunday morning. Thanks for joining us on Veterans Weekend. And thank you to those of you who have served in our armed forces somewhere along the way. It's allowed us to do, in part at least, to do what we're doing this morning. And we're in this series that is called Straight Out of Context for, and we're going to land the plane in this series. This is the last one of this series. And this is all about passages, verses in the Bible that are often taken out of context, even by Christians, even by well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians, not on purpose. It's not like we, we want to take things out of, out of context and misunderstand. I mean, yes, there are some false teachers who do it on purpose, but most Christians really, really genuinely want to understand what the Bible says, what God's intended message is. But there are very common misconceptions, and sometimes those misunderstandings, those misconceptions, because they are so common, turn into like strongly held beliefs <laughs> by Christians, and God didn't even say that thing. And that's the case for today's verse. I have never heard today's passage taken out of context in a way to, to manipulate somebody. I've never heard this passage taken out of context to, um, to get something uh, that, that you couldn't get with any other passage. This is one of those just, just accidentally uh, taken out of context by well-intentioned, well-meaning uh, Christians, and uh, maybe you might be one of them. Let's look at this passage, Isaiah 64, verse 6. It's not even the entire verse. It's just one, <laughs> one part of the verse. But let's read the verse, Isaiah 64, verse 6. It says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That's it. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy garment. Your Bible might say, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, one or the other. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And so the question for today is, is my righteousness like filthy rags? Is my righteousness like a filthy garment? And I don't know about you, but my first reaction, like my gut reaction to that is yes. That's my gut to that passage is yes. My righteousness is like filthy rags, like a filthy garment. When I was in high school, uh, we went on a missions trip down to Mexico. Our church had teamed up with a missionary down there. He already had a church in a small little neighborhood, small church, small neighborhood church, and, and he, was, uh, he was sharing the gospel and Jesus down there. And so our church went down there. The teenagers went down there, and the, 
the purpose for us to be there was to help him in ministry through the summer. And so throughout the day, we held a vacation Bible school for the kids of the neighborhood of that church. They all came to church and we held the vacation Bible school. And then in the evening, we would take the, the vans that we, that we used to, to drive everybody down there. We took the seats out of the vans, and so now they're like a cargo van. And we put in the vans, we put folding chairs and a projector, you know, back in the good old days when there was actually a projector, all right? So a projector and a movie screen and popcorn. And so then each evening we would drive to a different neighborhood and we would set up the chairs in someone's driveway and set up the screen and set up the movie projector and we we're going to have a movie night. And so we passed out popcorn. And of course, people in the neighborhood are like, oh, what's going on over there? And so they came over and we showed a movie. We showed the, the movie, the Jesus film. I don't know if you're familiar with the Jesus film, the Jesus film project. It's, uh, the, it's one world records for the most translated movie of all time. Just last week, it got to 2,000 languages. And it's a movie, it's a, it's a movie of Jesus's life, primarily told in the Gospels, but the focus obviously is who Jesus is being the Savior, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so it's been translated into 2,000 different languages, including Spanish. <laughs> and so that was the movie that we were playing. And so kind of towards the end of the week, I'd watch the Jesus film in Spanish, and I don't speak Spanish like four times. And so I'm like, I don't want to listen to that again. And so a few of uh, friends of mine, we were just sitting in the back of that empty van. Um, you could hear the movie playing outside as the people were watching that movie. And we were praying for the people who were watching that movie. We were praying that they would be saved. And some of them were. It was a wonderful weekend. Some of those people were saved. They got connected to that local church. And I assume, I mean, they're in God's hands, but I assume they're still growing in Christ just like I'm still growing in Jesus Christ. And it was a wonderful week, not just for them, but it was a wonderful week for me too. And on the trip back, the, all the high school students in the vans were recounting kind of joyously the, all of the events of the weekend. And you know when you get to Mexico and you're coming across the border, you're like waiting in that border wait line like for two hours or three hours. And so we were just talking about all of the things that occurred, you know, the, the things that that kid did or, or uh, the, the people that came to church that we had met out at the movie nights and all of those kinds of things. And just kind of jo joyfully recounting what happened during the week. And uh, one, of the, one of the older students in the back, you know, one of those know-it-alls in the back, speaks up and says, you know, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Like a fun killer, you know. He was one of those kinds. And, and we all heard that, and we were all humbled, and we all agreed and kind of the conversation stopped there, and we moved on. And so the question is, were all of those deeds that week, were they filthy? That's the question. Is it, is it impossible for a Christian to live a righteous life? Is, is that an impossibility? Have you ever caught yourself saying or heard another Christian say, you know, I just can't do anything right because I'm a, I'm a sinner? So the question for today is, is, as Isaiah 64, is all of our righteous deeds like a filthy garment? That's the question. Now, we know that as Isaiah wrote this, he, 
didn't just start with this one phrase. <laughs> he didn't just start with, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. He didn't just end with that either, because you can see that there are verses that come before that. You can see that there are verses that come after that. So whenever we say that phrase, we are automatically taking it, removing it from the context that it's in, and just saying that one phrase. And so if we're going to understand this passage, if we're going to understand what it means, we need to start back at the beginning. So why don't we do that? Why don't we start back at Isaiah 64? Let's go up to verse 1. And verse 1 will help us understand where we are, where we are headed in verse 6. In verse 1 it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As the fire kindles the brushwood, as the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. So this is a prayer. This is a prayer by the prophet Isaiah. Might I say also the righteous prophet Isaiah. And this is a prayer uh, crying out to God for help really crying out to God for mercy. Why would the prophet Isaiah be crying out to God for mercy? Well, verse 5 tells us exactly why he is praying this prayer. Verse 5 says, You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Verse 5 starts out with the righteous person and how God meets him where he is. But then it changes topics in, in verse 5. It says, Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them, in those sins, for a long time. Shall we be saved? So this is why this prayer is being prayed. The, the righteous prophet Isaiah uh, knows that the people that he is represented have been sinning for a long time. They've continued in their sin for a very long time. And he knows that if something isn't done, that God's judgment is going to fall upon these people because of their continuous sinful deeds. And so he's crying out to God for mercy. Verse 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There was no one who calls your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Properly understood, this is all about a righteous prophet who is crying out to God for mercy for all of the unsaved people who are continuing in their sin. When we look at verse 6, it says, for we all be become as those who are unclean. Those are people who are not saved. Then it says, the iniquities, the sins, take us away. And then in verse 7, it says that there is no one who calls. There is no one who calls on your name. No one is crying out for God. No one is turning to him. And so then, therefore, in verse 7, you have hidden your face from us. You've walked, walked away. You're not there anymore. Remember up in verse 5, it says, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness. But down in verse 7, you've hidden your face from those of us who were unclean. And that's exactly what has happened. And at the end, it says, you have delivered us over to the power of our iniquities, the power of our sin. Sin has enormous power. 
This is referring to people who are continuing in sin, sin, sinful and happy to sin, having no desire about the things of God. They are not saved. They are not believers. They are just continuing in their sin. And sin has power over them. Sin has enormous power. Have you ever been addicted to something? Some of you have been addicted to to things. Uh, Have you ever been addicted to smoking? Some people have. Some of you have. It, it is, it's, my grandfather was saved. He could never kick that smoking. It finally killed him. Sin has power. That ad, the addiction has power. Have you ever been addicted to drugs? Some of you have. My cousin, my same age, was addicted to drugs. He had some good days. He had some bad days. He had some good years. He had some bad years. But it reeled him in. He died at a very young age. Sin has power. Sin has enormous power. Have you ever been addicted? Have you ever been addicted to coffee? I'm not looking at any of you in your eyeballs. <laughs> you ever been addicted to TV? You ever been addicted to the internet? If you ever been addicted to pornography, sin has power. It's, it's enormously powerful. Have you ever let anger just hate, take hold of you even for just one minute? Anger has power. Sin has power. Have you ever let yourself think that you are better than another person? That's a sin of selfishness, and we have all fallen into that sin. Sin has an enormous power. And so the prophet Isaiah is crying out on behalf of a bunch of people who are not crying out for themselves. They are unclean. They are unrighteous. They are in the middle of all of their sin. And the prophet Isaiah, who is righteous, is just describing the life that they are living And he is saying that any righteous thing that they do is filthy. Anything that they could muster to be righteous or holy, any, going to church on Easter and wearing their nice shoes, uh, going, going to church on Mother's Day because their mom asked them to, the, 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 the righteous thing of saying, yes, I'm a Christian, when someone asked them if they're a Christian, all of those righteous things are like filthy garments. It's using the, the reference here of the, the menstrual clause that a, a woman would use during her period. Anything that someone who is far from God, who was unclean, God has distanced himself from them because they have distanced themselves from God. Anybody who is like that, the best that they could do is filthy rags. That's the best. The best thing, the most religious thing, when they offer up some trite prayer when they're asked to pray somewhere or or some trite prayer during Thanksgiving time, the best that someone who is unclean can do is like the menstrual clause of a woman. That's the best. Now, the prophet Isaiah continues in this chapter, verse eight. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. So this prayer is recognizing that God is the only one that can rescue them from the situation that they are in. There are some that are righteous, and he's already drawn near to them, verse 5. But most of us, (laughs) most of us are unclean. Most of us are living in sin for a long time, and we don't care. And God is the only one that can rescue them. He's the potter, and the sinners are the clay. 
and he pleads with the potter to to save these people because the best that the clay can do is filthy rags. The best that the clay can do, the, the most righteous that the clay can be on the most religious of holidays is like the minstrel rags of a woman. Now, let's like zoom back out for a minute. For clarity, a Christian is not far from God. A person that's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God has not walked far from them. They are close to God and God is close to them. When you draw near to him, he draws near to you. A person who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is not unclean, but they are clean because their sins have been removed from them. And so this passage is not referring to righteous people. This passage is referring to people who have rejected God, who are continuing to sin, are unclean, and are not saved. Now, what are these righteous deeds that verse six talks about? These righteous things that these people are doing that that are considered filthy rags. What are they? Well, chapter 65 is God's response to Isaiah's prayer. Isaiah is saying, oh, we need your mercy. the, the, The best things that we do on our religious days, these people don't even care about God. Now, God responds, and he describes what these filthy things are. Oh, that's good. Verse one of chapter 65. This is what God says. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that did not call my name. I have spread out my hand all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, people who continually provoke me to my face. Now, what is it that these people are doing that are provoking God to his face? What is it? All right, well, let's look. Offering sacrifices in gardens. Having a sacrifice sacrifice, um, uh, ministry. Now, a sacrifice is something that generally would be offered in Israel to recognize that there's a future Messiah, a God in heaven that that is gonna bring a future Messiah to take care of all of my sins. And so they're offering sacrifices even though they're not repentant of their sins. They're just doing a religious thing. They just walked into church and sung the worship song thinking that that's what got them, but there's no worship in this sacrifice at all. And then burning incense on bricks. So they're having their own worship service. <laughs> Incense is, the, is one of the things that they would have in their worship services, like an aroma to the Lord. And so they light these incense sticks as if that incense is somehow covering up their, continually, their continual sin that they did Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Now here they are on Sunday going to church and they're pretending like everything is okay and it just burns God. I mean, he burns with anger. He is, they are flaunting this in his face. That's not it. They sit among the graves, verse four. They, they, worship, they worship the dead. They spend the night in secret places. Who eats swine's flesh? They're eating bacon. Now that doesn't sound too bad to me. But you know that God told them not to eat bacon. 
pig was a, an unclean animal. They weren't supposed to eat it for a whole lot of reasons, health reasons, trying to protect the nation, a whole lot of other reasons that God told them not to eat it. And so as they come to these worship services, whatever it is, wherever they are, and they bring food to the, to the potluck, they're bringing bacon to a potluck to worship the God that said, don't eat the bacon, but they're bringing the bacon. They're flaunting it right in his face. And it's burning. It burns God. He's burning with anger. And the broth of unclean meat is in their pots as they bring it to this worship service. Verse 5, these people who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. It's those kinds of people. These are smoke in my nostril, a fire that burns all day long. God is burning with anger to them, throwing this hypocritical religiosity in his face, thinking that they're convincing God that they aren't sinful every other day of the week. Verse six, behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom, both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains, scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom, meaning that they're just going to get justice for the things that they did. They're gonna get judged for the things that they have done. These are the righteous deeds that these people have been doing. They have been pretending hypocritically to be religious, and yet God knows that they certainly are not. And this, this, this prayer in 64, and God's response in 65, was prayed and responded to many years before Jerusalem was overrun and the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. God didn't forget. And God followed through on his promise in chapter 65. And what this chapter is not telling people to do is that it is impossible to live a, 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 a righteous life. This passage isn't about that. This passage is not about telling people that they should not strive to live a righteous life because living righteously is, is filthy. This is saying that people who are unsaved, who are, who are, who are unrepentant, who who sin Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, especially on Saturday. When they come to church on Sunday and they pretend to be all religious, all that religiosity, it, the quality is the quality of the rags from a woman's period. That's the quality of the religiousness of that. So now we kind of understand the context a little bit more about what this passage is all about. Now, if you've misunderstood this passage in the past, that's okay. We've all misunderstood things in the past. But we're going to understand righteousness a little bit more because that's the topic. Is it possible for a Christian to live a righteous life or is it impossible? Is it impossible for a, a, a person to live a, a righteous life? Because in the New Testament, Jesus says something almost opposite of what Isaiah says. I want to show this to you. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6 about righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Now, that doesn't sound too filthy to me, does it? Hunger and thirst, this is something that's like natural. You don't teach any baby to hunger and thirst. They just are. No one taught you to be hungry or thirsty. You just were. And so when you were born as a baby, you wanted the healthiest of things to eat because you were hungry and thirsty and you didn't have any access to junk food yet and so you had peas and squash and you loved it because that's all you knew. And that was healthy. Then you grew up a little bit more, turned into a toddler, you became a little bit more discriminating with your food intake. And then by the time you got to be a, a child, you didn't even want to sit at the table anymore. You want to do just about anything but sit at the table and eat. And that's why your mom begged you, just sit in the chair and eat the chicken nugget. Just eat it. And by the time you turn into teenagers, there's like ravenous of any fast food possible. <laughs> health out the window, you know? Then they, then they turn into young adults and they turn into like fine connoisseurs. Of <laughs> all the food bloggers are millennials. And then by the time you end up to be an older adult, it's back to peas and squash <laughs> again. <laughs> and the whole point is that food consumption is necessary. Uh, drinking consumption is necessary to live. Now, the quality of the food and drink consu consumption is going to determine your quality of life. The, 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 the type of food that you consume and the type of drink that you consume is going to um, help your health or hurt it. And so God takes, or Jesus takes this obvious analogy and he puts it into the realm of righteousness. And he says, yeah, righteousness is just like that. Righteousness is like food and water to, to a Christian. You should hunger and you should thirst for that kind of thing. And so let me just ask for a minute. If, if righteousness was filthy, trying to live a righteous life is like filthy rags, would Jesus ask someone to do it? That's an interesting question. Of course, the obvious answer is no. There's something about this righteousness that is important to Christ. A Christian living a righteous life is an important thing to Christ. Something that, that we should look forward to, like you're looking forward to your brunch right now. Just like your kids were looking forward to the donut when they parked over here this morning. Just like that, we should hunger and thirst for this thing called righteousness. Now, in the Greek, that word righteous means being right or truthful or honest. Now, we know that there is only one who is perfectly righteous, who is intrinsically righteous. Psalm 11:7 says, God is righteous and he loves righteousness. God is the only one who is intrinsically righteous. The Bible tells us that no one else has an intrinsic, meaning living inside of them, righteousness. There's no one, no one who was born righteous. There, there are, there's none righteous. That's wrong. There's none righteous, no, not one. And now we found out from the prophet Isaiah,
ourselves. And so Jesus says, you should hunger for it. You should thirst for it. Just like you get hungry and thirsty for the food, a, a believer should hunger and thirst for, for righteousness. So it's not filthy. Now, let's go down the wormhole like one more level into righteousness. Okay, we've, we've gone through some surface things of righteousness, but now let's go one more level. Romans 1 says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, we're not going to unpack this verse totally. I just want to point out the fact that there's an assumption here that a person who is a believer is already righteous. That's the assumption. That a person who is saved is already righteous. And if you don't see it there, I'll show it to you much clear, more clearly in Romans 4. It says, but to the one who does not work, meaning doesn't work for his salvation, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so the implication in Romans is that as soon as you are saved, as soon as you put your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are automatically righteous. And I think all of, you, all of us would say, yeah, 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 that's true, that's true. But then why did Jesus tell us to pursue it, to hunger for it and thirst for it if we already have it? Huh. Now, if righteousness was filthy rags, then <laughs> Romans 4, 5 <laughs> is like on another planet. But that's because we now understand the righteous deeds in Isaiah were just the attempted hip, hypocritical righteousness of unsaved people. And when a person is saved, they are, boom, automatically righteous. Now, how can it be that righteousness is automatic, immediate, and yet also nobody has it and they should pursue it, they should hunger for it and thirst for it? How can both of those things be true? Because we're talking about two different kinds of righteousness. There's one kind of righteousness called positional righteousness. Have you ever heard that phrase before? We're getting deeper. I mean, we're going levels down into, into theology here, okay? So there's, there's something called positional righteousness, and that means once you are saved, once you put your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, E immediately, your position before God, your position before God is completely righteous. All of your sins are gone. You are completely clean. And to, as God sees you, the position that you have as God sees you is completely clean. Now, how could that be? Well, Isaiah 61, you're, you're in Isaiah 64, just turn like one page, for me it's just one page, for you it might be two pages to your left to Isaiah 61. How could it be that I'm immediately righteous? Isaiah 61, verse 10, 
This is how. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with garland and a bride adorns herself with jewels. Why is it that when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are immediately righteous, immediately positionally righteous before God? It's because Jesus' death on a cross immediately applies in their life. Their sins are completely paid for. The sins are removed. They are, they are not unclean anymore. They were unclean, but now they aren't in their belief in Christ's salvation. And Jesus wraps that person in his righteous garment, covering the, 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 right, the, the now completely cleansed person in his righteousness. That is how a person can be immediately righteous. That is positional righteousness before God. Have you been wrapped in Jesus' robe of righteousness? If you have, you are completely righteous. And that is positional righteousness. Meaning, my position before God, he sees me as completely righteous, not because of anything I've done on my own, but because of what Jesus has done for me and wrapped me in his righteousness. Now, you remember though that Jesus says this. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and they shall be satisfied. And so when Jesus is saying this, he's not saying you need to hunger and thirst for your positional righteousness. You already have it. It was immediate. It was one and done. However, we still sin. Even though our sins are completely forgiven, practically, we are unrighteous. You still sin? Practically, you're not righteous yet. Positionally before God, you are completely righteous. And yet you still sin. Yes, you were wrapped in Jesus' robes of righteousness, and yet, practically, we still sin. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's not saying you better keep pursuing positional righteousness. You better keep doing good things to keep your position before God. You better be a really good person. No, no, no. All that occurred when you put your faith in Jesus, he wrapped you in his robes of righteousness. That's done. That was immediate. That, that's already been, in the, been done in the past. You don't have to work for it, hunger for it, thirst for positional righteousness anymore. It's already done. Praise God. So, so what kind of righteousness is a believer now that they have positional righteousness to be hunger and thirsting for? This practical righteousness. Living your life differently than you did before. Our lives and our actions being cleaned up for our entire life. Now, the positional righteousness before God was immediate. It happened immediately when you put your faith and trust in Christ. However, the practical righteousness, just as you were living your life, is a lifelong endeavor. It is not an immediate thing. It is God sanctifying you, cleaning up your life for the rest of your life. The goal in your life would be that you would be perfect as positionally you are. That's the goal. 
Paul talks about that in his books. That's the goal. (laughs) That's the prize. But I'm not going to reach that probably this side of heaven. And so we're talking about two different kinds of righteousness. We have a positional righteousness before God. That's the, I am immediately saved and I'm immediately righteous. But then we have the physical, practical righteousness that is not quite completely perfect or righteous yet. It will be someday when we get to heaven, but not quite yet. And so Jesus tells Christians to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to living a a righteous life. And notice what Jesus says, that when a, a person pursues righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Everybody's looking for satisfaction. Some people look for satisfaction in the college degree that they're going to get or the, or, the, or the career that they get themselves into or the, the success that they find in their career or in the amount of friends that they have on social media, the amount of friends that they have in person or the kind of respect that they gain at work or the cars that they have or the new house that they get or the new spouse that they get or the new home that they get. They're looking for satisfaction, but all those things just don't really satisfy. But what does satisfy? a believer living a righteous life. That is the thing that satisfies. And that doesn't sound too filthy to me. See, when we quote that verse, it's, it's, at first it sounds right. But once we begin to unpack what righteousness is, that Jesus calls us to righteousness, that that verse, now we can see, is not directed towards someone who is a believer. So back to this question again, is my righteousness like filthy rags? Is this really true? Can a Christian not live a righteous life? Absolutely not. (laughs) A Christian can strive to live a righteous life. As a matter of fact, a Christian (laughs) is the only one who can (laughs) do that. A believer is the only one who has the potential for that. And you're like, well, man, are you saying that humans can, can in all of their goodness be good in themselves? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. This is how Paul says it in, in Colossians, this living a good life thing. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And this is the point. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. How is is it that a Christian can begin to to live practically righteous, their their life and their morality being cleaned up? How, How do we do that? Not in our own strength, but in God's power. When we are saved, yes, our sins are removed. Yes, we have the hope of eternity in heaven, but it's not, it's not like just a ticket for the future. God, the Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside of us and helps us to live a godly life today. And so this righteous life is not in my own power. It's not in my own strength. It's in, in his power. That's what Paul's perspective is. It's, it's his power that does this, that, that helps me live righteously. Every single morning when, uh, every single uh, Sunday morning when we come to church, we pray in the car, and, the, and my prayer is that as, as we all serve around here on a Sunday morning, you know, uh, whether it's teaching Sunday school or security or opening up early or staying late to lock up or uh, singing, whatever it is, my, my prayer is that every single person would be doing it in God's power, in the Holy Spirit's power, because that's where the joy in ministry comes from. 
from God's power. That, that's, that's what helps us do things that we would never do comfortably on our own. But all of a sudden, we, we do them for his glory because it's his power that's being used in, inside of us. And if that's, if that's not enough, then the, the, the next verse is Ephesians 2.10. It says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When a person is positionally saved and perfect, there are, there's a plan that God has. Believers are called to practical righteousness. There are things that God wants us to do, and he gives us the power to do them. This is the model of a Christian life. And so we kind of have this, this, this tension in, in our life as a believer. Here's the tension. The tension is, here we are perfect, and here we are not perfect. That's the tension. You have a, you have a, 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 a perfect person <laughs> and an imperfect person, and that's the, the, the give and take of a life of a believer living on planet Earth. The difficulty of perfection in Christ, wrapped in his righteousness, and someone who is not practically perfect yet continued in their sins. Yeah, they're still marked by sin, though not identified by those sins anymore. This is the way that the writer of Hebrews puts it. it says, for by one offering he has perfected for all of time those who are sanctified. You've been perfected. Do you feel perfect yet? You are? Positionally before God, you are perfect. Positional righteousness, immediate. And yet, as you're living practically your life, you're not quite there yet. And that's why God's power is there to help you live up to his standards. And so now back to this question that we started with. Is all of my righteousness like filthiness, like filthy garments? Well, yes, they used to be. All of us at some point in time in our life used to not be a believer. And back then when we came to church or when we did what, uh, you know, we, our parents took us to church or when we were in those Sunday school, whatever it was, all of the righteousness that we could have done was just like filthy rags. But once we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we were no longer far from him anymore. We were close to him. We drew near to him and he drew near to us. We are no longer unclean, but we are clean. And after that point in time, not only is our righteousness not filthy rags, Christ calls us to living a life of righteousness. And the only way that we can attain it is through his power. So what about those teenagers that were in that church van coming back from Mexico? Did they deserve that rebuke? No. It was just said out of good intentions, you know? It was, it was just said out of misunderstanding that passage. He wasn't calling all of us in the van a bunch of unclean sinners that had been sinning forever. Now, maybe one or two of them were unclean sinners sinning forever. But I, I know for sure that I was a believer. And so at that point in time, my righteousness was not like filthy rags. As a matter of fact, it was God's power that was, that was enacted there in Mexico. And it was God's power as the one who uh, helped me. I, I don't speak Spanish. I had to learn 
songs about Jesus in Spanish. <laughs> I couldn't sing them for you now even if I wanted to. So what, what would motivate a teenager to do all those things? It's Christ's power. I was there under Christ's power. And it was God's power that was glorified in those people's lives when they heard the gospel of Jesus through that movie. They went to a church, they get saved. And hopefully today, they're also living a righteous life, also. Now, maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you haven't been wrapped in Jesus' robes of righteousness. And so, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to do that. Would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes, all of you? Whether you know you're going to heaven or not, today's a day where you could put your faith and trust in Jesus. You can know that you are positionally righteous before God, not hope so because of your good works, because they are like filthy wrecks. But you could know that you're going to heaven because of your belief in Jesus Christ, that he's God, he died on the cross for your sins, and he rose from the grave. If you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you believe Jesus, who he is in the Bible, you just talk to God. In the comfort of your own heart, you don't need to say anything out loud. But while no one's looking, no one's paying attention to you, you could just talk to him in the quietness of your own heart. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to tell me. You just talk to God. And here's what you could say. You could agree with these words in your own heart. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. And I know that I'm far from you because of my sin. And I know that I need a savior. And I believe that that savior is Jesus. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that he rose from the grave. And he offers me his righteousness. And so I put my belief in him. I put my eternity, eternity into his hands. I need to be wrapped by Jesus' robes of righteousness. And God, we thank you for this. We thank you for what you do for us. We thank you for your provision of immediate positional righteousness because of faith in your son. And we praise you because you sent us your Holy Spirit to to strive for living a righteous life. And God, I pray that the Christians at Grace Community Church would be satisfied as they pursue righteousness. We pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen.